0: If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General
1: Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman.
0: I had to know, so I decided, let's give them a call. Welcome Welcome to the the Calling the Calling History Podcast.
1: Welcome back to Part 2 of Richard Allen. In the last episode, we talked about Richard working on the Underground Railroad, how he paid for all of his ventures, and his approach to talking a little but then doing a lot. In this episode, he'll tell us how he had to physically restrain the Methodists from taking over his church, and he talks about why he considered leaving the United States forever.
0: Absolutely, and I can tell you, when I first... Became a believer, I spent all of my free time reading the Word of God, praying, seeking God, listening for His direction in my life. You see, because you say you are a Christian, that doesn't make you a Christian. Because a Christian puts Christ and the Word of God as the first place in their life. Everything else is secondary. And I believe that if people wholeheartedly come to the faith and by their faith they do things that please God, this is the path that we need to follow.
1: So let's talk about the church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church.
0: Is that what it's called, the AME? Yes, it came to be called Mother Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Mother because it's the mother church of the denomination that was formed. And it got the name Bethel because a minister who was visiting with us said, boy, I hope this church will be a real Bethel for the Africans in this city Bethel is a Hebrew word that means house of God so the AME
1: and the Mother Bethel Methodist Church are the same
0: yes it, the whole title is Mother Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church I see okay so- now I'm with yep. you okay some people get confused when they see Episcopal That's not the denomination. Episcopal in this context simply means that we have bishops that we assign to uh, run church affairs. Of which you are the first, correct? Yes, that's correct. When they had the first vote, I was not selected as number one. They didn't like your attitude? No, it wasn't about (laughs) attitude the one who was selected was a man by the name of coker reverend coker from baltimore and he was young he was younger than i was he was a very fiery preacher and he was chosen however shortly after he was chosen or nominated he turned it down because i really believe that he felt that i would make a better bishop or leader than he would, because I had a lot more experience.
1: So tell me a little bit about how that came into being. I also, and I don't know about this person, but as I read about you, I I keep hearing the name Absalom
0: Jones. Did he start it with you? Well, when I came to Philadelphia at the invitation of St. George's Methodist Church in the year 1786, and I came to St. George's Church, Absalom Jones was a member, an African member of that church. And what happened was they would say to me that I could hold services for Africans at five o'clock in the morning, separate from the regular services. Wow. And when I first started, it was only five. However, I also preach on the street corners to any African I can find. And within a year, there was more than 40 of us. And that's when we started to experience problems in St. George's during the regular services because we'd go to the regular services as well. But because our numbers increased, they became very uncomfortable. And sometimes we just had to stand along the walls. And on one particular Sunday, it was time for prayer. We're kneeling down and praying. Some of us are kneeling down and praying in whites-only sections. At which point, they were violently pulled off their knees while they were praying. In church? Oh yes, in church. And actually, the men who were pulled off their knees said, "We'll move, but just let us finish our prayer prayers. And they refused to allow them. do that and absalom jones was one of the ones that was violently yanked off his knees while he was praying which of course prompted a walkout and we started to see what we could do to have another way to worship because clearly this was not going to work because they were regarding us as not being equals in the house of god bishop
1: allen this reminds me of that line in scripture that's and i know you know exactly where it is where it says if somebody is praying but they're praying where you want to pray you're supposed to grab them and throw them out of the way and pray there is that did i get that right well the scripture that
0: i'm familiar with (laughs) is has to do more with if somebody comes into the church and they're dressed very fancy it's not right for you to treat them differently than a poor person that comes into the church. You are supposed to treat them equally. You're not supposed to judge that this one with the fine clothing is a better person. And surely the Africans, well, we, some of us could dress pretty well, but as a general rule, we were not dressed to the same level But that wasn't even the biggest issue, the issue was the color of the skin. The color of the skin made us to be less of a being in the eyes of many whites.
1: There's a quote that I read that I want to read this and see if maybe you said this, and I think this is fantastic because I remember in one of these conversations with, I, I I may have been speaking with a slave owner at one point, I can't remember who I was talking to, but he basically said something along the lines of that in this church they went to, it was a really big church, and you had the free blacks sitting in one portion of the church and the enslaved blacks sitting in a different section of the church, and the two would not commingle, like one was better than the other, which just amazes me. And so then I see this quote, which I think this came from you, you'll have to tell me, And it was, we will never separate ourselves voluntarily from the slave population in this country. They are our brethren, which is the exact opposite of what was happening in that church. Is that from
0: you? Yes, it is. I helped to draft that statement. It actually happened. There was a meeting held in my church in the year 1817 to discuss something called the colonization plan. There was an organization called the American colonization society and the idea was that there were many whites who wanted to get rid of all of the free blacks in this country and keep only the slaves the idea was to convince africans to voluntarily agree to leave this country and go to a colony in africa And in 1817, I held a meeting to discuss this, and we presented the idea to 3,000 Africans there, and we voted, do we want to accept this plan? And the answer was no, unanimously. And I helped to draft a statement that went basically as follows. Whereas our ancestors, not of choice, were the first successful cultivators of the wilds of America. We, their descendants, feel ourselves entitled to participate in the blessings of her luxuriant soil, manured with their sweat and blood. We will never voluntarily separate ourselves from the slave population of this country. They are our brethren by the ties of sanguinity, blood ties suffering and of wrong. So yeah, we had an affinity for them. So we rejected the idea to just leave the enslaved behind.
1: What a strange proposition for them to say, you know, anybody that's free, we want you to leave. So you're so free that we don't want you here anymore. And I'm sure if the tables were turned and they said, look, obviously you don't want to live together and that's fine. Why don't we stay and you leave? They'd say, Well, that's crazy. You know what I mean?
0: And yet they want you to leave your home. Well, yeah. uh, The thing is that free African-Americans say this is our home. We're born here. So we want this to be our home. But the whites in the South certainly don't want to see free African-Americans walking around. Because the enslaved will look at them and say, Hey, I want to be free too. And they were concerned there would be insurrections. So, for the white slave owners, they definitely want free Africans out from their territory. In the North, you had something not exactly the same, but you know what? You Africans, you are lazy people. You're an evil people, and we don't want you here. And you had people like Thomas Jefferson. He was quoted as saying, Let the oceans separate the black race from the white race, because he didn't believe the Africans were equal. And you had people like James Madison, who, and Senator Henry Clay, Those kinds of people were pushing for this idea, let's get these free Africans out of here. They're an inferior people and really they're causing problems in our society. And I can tell you that there were Quakers who supported this idea of, hey, let's get the free Africans out of here. Did you have other problems with the Quakers? Well, when we walked out of uh, St. George's, we really didn't have a place to meet. And eventually the Quakers allowed us to use an African school for meeting. And because it was in a Quaker facility, they required that when we would have times of worship, we would have to do it according to their style. And the rule was, 15 minutes, no one must say a word. And then after that, people can just randomly stand up and say something they feel that should be said. And in addition to that, Quakers do not believe in singing hymn. I thought this was strange because I was used to services where there was preaching and there was teaching and people sang praises. So, I became very disenchanted with these kinds of meetings. It seemed like Africans were drifting to. And I made it publicly known that, no, this is not the right way for us to worship. It's just not good. And for that, I was read out of meetings. That's how, how Quakers tell you, you're not welcome in our meetings anymore. What does that mean, read out of meetings? They stand in the front of the congregation and they explain that such and such an individual is no longer welcome to meet with us and to be part of what we're doing because they have gone outside of what we believe is proper behavior. And because I was advocating for another kind of worship service, they read me out of meeting. And this had the agreement of the other Africans as well. And so they're publicly exiling you from the meeting. That's right. However, but that didn't separate me from those Africans. I kept very close contact with them because I believed it would only be a matter of time before they would agree with me. That, no, this is not the way to worship. It is strange. We need to have a style that we are more comfortable with, not this Quaker way.
1: What happened next then? So we're still not at the Mother Bethel Methodist?
0: No, we're still not there. In 1791, 1792, the other Africans agreed with me. And we realized we needed to start an independent African church. And we began fundraising. They actually entrusted me to find a site for the African church. I found it at 6th and Lombard. They didn't like that site because, you see, many of those free Africans, they're business people and they're pretty wealthy and they want status. The site that I found was right in the middle of an African neighborhood, and they didn't like that. So they found another site near Fifth and Walnut, because that's right near Independence Hall, very prominent location. And they decided they wanted that location instead of the one that I had found. So I said, I'm not giving up on that location the Africans voted and they decided they wanted to be Episcopal and they asked me to be the leader and I refused if you're familiar with the Episcopal style of worship has a lot of pomp and ceremony in it a lot of high fancy talking
1: oh you'd love that
0: And and I did not think this was the best approach Africans, newly freed, no education, no fancy clothes, and they gave a simple message. You're a sinner, you're going to hell, you need Christ. He's your Savior. And so that's why I refused to accept leadership of that church, but I maintained cordial relations with them. Two weeks later, I started my own church at the location that I found
1: at first. I see. And so the man who I can't say his name,
0: Absalom, was, was Yeah, Absalom Jones.
1: You
0: yes, you see, Absalom Jones and I wanted a Methodist style of worship. However, they were outvoted by the other Africans who preferred the Episcopal style because many of them were familiar with Christ church, where George Washington worshipped, where Benjamin Franklin worshipped. John and Betsy Ross and they learned the gospel there and some of them even got baptized there but not to be an equal member in that church so they decided they wanted to be Episcopal Absalom Jones agreed to lead that church but I would not because again I did not think this was the best match for Africans in this city they didn't have education and fancy clothes like many of those other Africans that voted. They we were it thinking it might turn school. them
1: away instead of pull them
0: in. Yes, they're not going to understand what's going on. If you go and look at an Episcopal service, it's like a Catholic service. There's a lot of walking around and processions and the bells are ringing and all this other stuff. I felt, no, let me just tell these people you're a sinner and you're going to hell. You need Christ as a savior. Now let's go do and, some you stuff know, that's useful. Yeah. Rather than all the pomp and ceremony and fancy clues and fancy talk. I think the first year, the Episcopal church, they had like uh, 400 members. Me, my first year, I had 20. I had an old blacksmith shop that I dragged onto the premise. However, within the first couple of years, my membership began to equal their membership and then now in 1830 i've got about 3,000 members and i'm in the Mm -hmm. same location they are far less than that and they actually had to give up the location of the first site for their church
1: so let's say that i was a young black man with a family i just moved to the town right and you're in philadelphia right right okay And so I just moved to Philadelphia, I don't know, from somewhere south, let's say. And I'm a young man, I'm 25, I've got three kids and a wife, and I've been married for five years. Mm -hmm. When I come to your church, what am I getting from your church? What does it feel like for me to come into your church?
0: Well, you're getting an atmosphere where the objective of the church is to spread the gospel and to build one another in the truth, and in the word of God. You're going to get the idea that you were loved by God. God's got a plan for your life. These are his ways. We need to walk according to his ways, and we need to accept Christ as our servant. The typical membership in my church had kind of a, a broad range to it, I would say it went from the very poor to people who were maybe somewhere in between. The Episcopal Church, St. Thomas' African Episcopal Church, that appealed a lot more to the more wealthy Africans, the ones that had a little bit more education, the ones that had a little bit more money. So in my church, it accommodated a, a wide range of people, whereas the African Episcopal Church seemed to be more targeted for those that had the education and the money. So what happens if I come to your church and I can't read? Well, it would not be alone. Most <laughs> of the people that came to my church in the early years could not read i did start a school for africans in my church so that people could learn to read and a lot of times when we had voting on different issues people couldn't sign their names but people could just make an x and it was my hope that over time more and more africans would be educated, because I saw education as being extremely important.
1: Did you teach yourself to read or did you learn to read in the church when you were young?
0: I learned to read in the church. You remember that African Methodist church school? Mm -hmm. That's where I learned. I was allowed to go on a weekly basis. And of course, going once a week, there's a lot of self-study involved. So I learned how to learn. I took what materials and education I've had access to, and I did my best to supplement it the best way I could.
1: And I was fairly successful. Somebody taught you how to fish, it sounds
0: like, instead of giving you a fish. I appreciated to be encouraged to be independent and to learn for myself because I think the worst thing in the world is to think that you're learning the bible based on what somebody is telling you versus being able to read it for yourself Mm -hmm. and know for sure what it said let's talk
1: about benjamin rush for a minute i don't know a lot about benjamin rush but when the yellow fever epidemic broke out he made the assertion that people with dark skin could not get yellow fever
0: is that correct that is correct is that true dr (laughs) benjamin rush actually was instrumental would you tell us who he is he is a founding father of this country he is a signer of the declaration of independence he is a very famous doctor here in philadelphia and my experience with him during yellow fever was that he taught me and many other africans something called phlebotomy. Are you familiar with phlebotomy? Taking blood? Yes. Because he believed that if you were sick, the reason was you had bad blood. So what we need to do is take some of that blood out and to also purge you from any undigested food as well. So I was trained along with many other Africans during the yellow fever epidemic to treat patients with phlebotomy. And I got deathly ill. (laughs) I was September of 1793, I got extremely ill. But I do believe there were a lot of people praying for me and I actually got some pretty good care and I was able to recover from that. And we we did it knowing that we were not immune. We died at the same rate as the white population of this country, roughly 10% of us died, which is actually miraculous considering the fact that we, the Free African Society, an organization that was formed was contacted by the mayor who pleaded with us for our help in looking after the sick and burying the dead. So that's what we did. We looked after the sick, and we buried the dead, putting our own lives at risk for the service of the community.
1: So basically what his plan was is that somebody would come in with yellow fever, and he would say, oh, this is terrible. We got to get somebody that has dark skin because they can't get this. And then you guys, how much, do you just draw an amount of blood that you thought it was the right amount that would make them healthy? Yeah,
0: that was it? Yeah, the, the situation really was that when the yellow fever epidemic hit, if you could leave this city, you did. And that included doctors and nurses, the government, they all left. And so now there's nobody left behind to look after the sick and to bury the dead. Oh, I see. So the mayor of Philadelphia sends oh. us members of the Free African Society, a letter begging us for our help. And although we knew we were not immune, we agreed to do it as a service to God and a service to the community. You'd think that everyone would appreciate what we did. However, that was not the case. A gentleman by the name of Matthew Carey, who had a large printing press operation, began to publish pamphlets citing cases where there were Africans who actually robbed people that were sick. And they said that they charged exorbitant fees to help those that were in need. Thousands of copies of this pamphlet went out, and it created an impression that we Africans were just bad people that were taking advantage of a horrible situation. So Absalom Jones and I published a pamphlet, and it was the first publication of any Africans in this country rebutting this because we wanted to give the people more than stories that were bad with stories that were good, because many Africans worked, put their lives at risk, and didn't even accept $1. And in fact, the Free African Society kept a very close accounting of what was spent and what was taken in. And we spent more than we took in because we didn't turn anybody away if anybody needed to be buried and they needed to have a coffin we went and we spent the money whether we actually had the money or not we were actually in debt at the end of the yellow fever epidemic
1: but you you've mentioned the free african society many different times i understand the words but i'm not crystal clear what this organization is does this organization have a building that they meet in like a
0: church let me explain what happened when i came here in 1786 and i saw the terrible conditions that the free newly freed africans were living in they needed help just to survive so absalom jones and i created an organization it was called the free african society And the purpose of that society is that we free Africans who were in the city and were working contributed money on a monthly basis to help out those in our community that were desperately in need, most particularly the widows and the orphans. And we hired a Quaker to keep the books, to keep account of the monies that we took in and spent, because we realized Quakers had a reputation of being extremely honest people. So we figured if we hired a Quaker to look after the financial affairs of the free African society, people would feel comfortable contributing money for the things that we were trying to accomplish.
1: That's a smart move. That's you thinking well ahead of the problems before they develop.
0: Well, yes. Uh, we, we actually formed the Free African Society. In the preamble, it says that we, Africans of that time, and our descendants, do unanimously agree to work together for the needs of our community. We didn't want to have a situation where we had to wait for people outside of our community to come into our community and provide the help that the people that were desperate need needed. So we intended for the Free African Society to be an ongoing thing that even the descendants that we would have would pick up and realize we have to address the needs of our community on others to come into our community to do that when you purchased your freedom that was in
1: 1780 and when you're separated 1783 1780
0: 1783
1: okay somewhere okay in that window. And when you were separated from your family at 17, you were, that was like 1777, I think. And the Free African American Society was 10 years after that, 1787, somewhere in that. So you've got Mm -hmm. this window of time, this 10, 15 years, where you're doing a lot of stuff. And we're in the middle of the American Revolution.
0: So how did that affect Mm. what you were doing? Well, right around the time I got my freedom was when the war ended. So during the war, as I mentioned, I did do some things in support of the revolution, but a lot of my time I spent preaching because there's this large group of free Africans in this city, well over a thousand, probably close to 2,000, and the white churches pretty much ignored them. And I saw, oh, yes, they pretty much ignored them. So I saw the Africans, the newly freed Africans, they were like sheep that had no one to lead them in the right way in this society. So I spent most of my time preaching. And as I mentioned, I did have businesses that I was attending to, fundraising, for African churches and being involved in church affairs. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And I wanted to mention that even after I had my church, it was not an independent church. You see, because in 1796, I signed letters of incorporation into the Methodist church. So basically, I signed it not realizing that what I just did was I signed over the property rights of that church to the Methodists. And in addition to that, by signing letters of incorporation, I was basically saying I am under the authority of the Methodist church leadership. And that became a problem, because they wanted to dominate and control everything that we did in our church. Now, you see, I was not an ordained minister in the Methodist denomination. In 1799, I became an ordained deacon, but I did not have the spiritual authority serve a communion or to baptize people. I had to get that from the Methodist Church leadership at St. George's, and it got to the point where they would tell us we couldn't even hold any services unless we had their permission to do so. And that prompted me in 1807 to do something to get two-thirds vote of the African members that were in the church to perform something called the African Supplement, which gave control of the church property and decisions in the church to the African trustee. As you can imagine, the Methodists were less than pleased with that (laughs) idea. Right, because they wanted control. They absolutely wanted total control. After we did the supplement, they said, okay, you have to get ministers from us. It's gonna cost you $600 a year. And we said, we can't pay 600. And we were able to get them down to 200. But then we still had a problem with them, wanting to control everything. And we really couldn't come to agreement on those things. And it got to the point where the Methodist leadership would try to force their way into the church and preach, whenever they felt like it. And we were not happy with this, and we physically stopped them. The Methodists became so enraged at this, in 1815, they threw us out of our church building, and they put it up for public auction. But because, as I mentioned before, I had money, I was able to go and buy the church back off of public auction. Then they filed a case against us at the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, because they said, they tried to argue that the original letters of corporation still held, and that property could not be transferred to us, even though we had just bought it at auction and we had to stay completely under their control. However, the Supreme Court ruled in our favor, and we were finally independent. And after getting independence, that's when we decided we need to unite the African churches throughout the country, and we formed the denomination where I became the first bishop.
1: Here you are just trying to do good. That's all you're trying to do. Nobody can argue with that. And you're just trying to lift people up and do good. And it's just every day. It's a new fight to do
0: good. Yes. Yes. This is part of the Christian life. You struggle (laughs) against the forces of this world, which are controlled by the devil who hates God's people and you fight and you struggle and you hold on to your faith and you go as far as you can go and you do whatever it is that you can do. You take the insults, you take all the oppression, you take all of that knowing that if you maintain yourself in a right relationship to God, ultimately you will
1: be victorious. Good advice. Where do you stand on the United States now? Are you a patriot or or not so much? Or where do you fall? Well,
0: I have to be honest with you. Put yourself in my position for a second. Here you are in the United States, 1790. There's a new government in place. We start passing laws. One of the laws they passed is something called the Naturalization Act. The Naturalization Act basically says you have to be in the country. You had to have been in the country for so many years and the skin color had to be white or you could not be a citizen of this country by federal law. And in 1792, they passed the Militia Act, which said, unless the color of your skin is white, you may not serve in the armed forces of this country. And as time is going on, Remember I talked to you about the American Colonization Society? I actually held meetings at my house because for a time I said, hey, maybe this is what Africans need to do to be free. And that didn't work out. However, you've heard about the revolution that happened in Haiti?
1: Clear that
0: up. Haiti successfully revolted against the French and got independence from the French so i would say around the 1820s the haitian government reached out to african americans in this country and said we will pay for you to transport to come to haiti we'll give you land when you get here and let's build together an african nation and i can tell you i supported this idea in fact, I gathered the name of 500 Africans who wanted to go to Haiti because we began to feel this is the only way we're going to have freedom. In fact, several members from my church went to Haiti. So we began to look outside of this country as a way to have freedom for our people. And I can tell you, and this year, I have organized an organization. It's called the Society of Free Persons of Color. And I pulled together African leaders from all over this country. You see, because we were facing increasing violence and oppression. We knew what had happened in Ohio. In the previous years, free Africans in Ohio were required to post a five hundred dollar bond for their good behavior. In addition to that, what? Hold on, they have to post it for their good. I don't understand. Clarify. Meaning, in order for you to remain in Ohio as an African, you had to go and pay. $500 for a bomb as a surety that you were going to be a good person and you weren't going to cause trouble. (laughs) That's ridiculous. And in addition to that, we had heard in 1829, there was a community of free Africans that were experienced riots from whites who wanted to destroy their houses and destroy their businesses. Several of them had to flee to Canada for their lives. So when I organized this organization of free Africans in 1830 at my church, we had three objectives. One was to improve our lot in this country, which included see can we purchase some land, and have more ownership of land but the other thing that we wanted to do was establish a settlement in upper canada ontario where those africans who were in this country who were tired of the oppression and they were tired of the relation that they could go to canada because canada at that time was accepting Enslaved and free Africans into their country where they could become citizens. So we started to look at other options beyond this country. Because you weren't getting the support that was reasonable based on the good that you were trying to do. Exactly. We're not seeing any movement towards equality, even having the right to vote. Because in fact, in Pennsylvania, right around this time, there's already being debates to officially deny African citizenship in Pennsylvania. Before it was kind of, well, maybe it's not, eh, we're not exactly sure. But now there's talk that they wanted to officially exclude us from citizenship in Pennsylvania, we were already excluded from citizenship federally, and they wanted to add to that. And in fact, the Pennsylvania legislature began to support the idea that free Africans should go.
1: I don't think that anybody with an open mind would look at this situation and think that it was unreasonable that you were looking for a different home considering the way that you were being treated it makes complete sense. And it makes me want to ask this question. What
0: role do women play in your church? I am going to tell you my role of my women. I was married twice. My first wife, her name was Flora. She was a godly, godly woman who really supported and gave me encouragement during the worst times, when the times where I needed that very unfortunately she is a sickly woman and we never had children we were married for 10 years and i wanted to mention remember i said i had rental properties i could trust her to go out and collect the rent and to manage those properties so i didn't have to be concerned with that i had so many other things now i remarried in 1801 a woman named sarah And she, again, was a godly woman, and I was able to have six children. She also, I could trust, to send out and manage our rental properties and to collect the rents and to manage those properties. You worked side by side. We worked side by side. And I can tell you, as a preacher, sometimes we'd go out on campaigns and the clothes would just start to fall apart. And the one day I came in and she said, you are not leaving this house again, looking like that. And she gathered together all of the women and they made sure that we ministers had proper dress. So I look at women, in my experience with the women, to be extremely supportive in what we were doing. And I don't know how I could have made it without the support of the women in my life. Were
1: you involved with the Freemasons as well?
0: Yes. Three years after we started the African church, we started an African lodge, Freemason Lodge. We looked at places like Christchurch. Christchurch has uh, George Washington, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, Bishop William White. They are all Freemasons we saw what Christ's church was sort of as a model because these were churches that had Freemasons in them, very prominent Freemasons. But for we Africans, we were not allowed to be Freemasons because Freemasonry is by invitation only. So when we had our church, we said, oh, yes, we have ministries and all this, but boy, why should we be denied Freemasonry? They tried to deny us to have a church, an independent church, and now they're trying to deny us of having Freemasonry. And I didn't know anything about Freemasonry until I came to Philadelphia and I met with other Africans here who had been in England and when they were in England, the Freemasons there allowed them to participate in Freemasonry and so when we looked and saw how prominent and the Freemasons were and it's also a church we wanted that too and we were able to finally get it three years later because there was an African man in Boston by the name of Prince Hall and He knew when the British occupied, he met the British there, and he became friends with them, and they were Freemasons. And they granted Prince Hall the authority to start African Freemasonry in the United States. And we went there, and we got permission to have a Freemason Lodge. I was treasurer of that. Organization. But I can tell you that if you look, I just recently wrote an autobiography. And in that autobiography, I make it very plain the way I want to be remembered is as a preacher of the gospel. That's how I want it to be remembered. And if you look at my autobiography, you'll see there's nothing in there about Freemasonry because. Absalom Jones took Freemasonry a lot more seriously than I did because eventually I stopped being the treasurer of the Freemasons. But Absalom Jones, he became what is called the Grand Master of the Prince Hall or the African Freemasonry in Philadelphia. And later, he actually became the head of the Black Freemasons in Pennsylvania. Incredible. He went that far with it, huh? Oh, he went extremely far with it. And and I can tell you, when he died, Masons have a funeral procession that they do, a funeral ceremony. And I started that ceremony at my church where I delivered a message. And then we marched to the church that he led and I delivered another message. But again, the primary thing in my life was not Freemasonry. It was spreading the gospel.
1: When you just said that's how you would want to be known as a preacher of the gospel, that is one question that I knew that I was never going to ask you how you wanted to be remembered or what you were looking for, because (laughs) it's very clear what your goal is. And I want to tell you, I'm just So thankful for everything that you have done because it's made a difference in the world that we live right now for so many people. And it is the right way to live the way that you live. And I'm so thankful for you. And I guess as we wrap this up, is there anything else that you'd like to leave? Maybe a message for future generations? Any thoughts you'd like to say?
0: Yeah, I think it's so important. When I first started preaching the gospel, I preached to whites and blacks it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is because i believe we are all human and we all should love and care for one another and i believe that if this country can get to the point where we see one another as made in the image of god and if we all walk by faith in Jesus Christ this country can be united and this country will stand the test of time but my concern is that if we remain divided Christ warned us a house divided against itself will not stand Bishop Allen
1: I thank you so much for your time today and all of your wisdom And I wish you the absolute best in the future.
0: God bless you. And I thank you for this opportunity. And it was really a pleasure to spend time with you.
1: Richard Allen was one of the good guys. He made money, lots of it. But he didn't get power hungry or forget about those who were not doing as well as he was. He was always trying to lift those people up around him. He was practical without being rude or unfair. When the United States didn't want to make him a citizen or give him rights, he worked around the rules. After all, nothing said you had to be a citizen to own property. Once he felt that those changes would never happen, though, he gathered his people and said, hey, if they don't want us, we can leave. And when he was called upon to risk his life by founding father, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who asked him to tend to those dying or dead from the yellow fever epidemic, He didn't give it a second thought. He did what had to be done to help his fellow man from the moment he first saw his purpose to the last day of his life. Along the way, he inspired people to work hard, be charitable, be resilient, and always have unwavering, unbreakable faith. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed this episode, subscribing now will give you the ability to communicate with your pets and even your houseplants. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.